Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 138 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello there. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Hello, everyone. Bonjour. I have something to report, which is I got some, how will I put this? Surprise shame? Shame, mm. secondary shame, shame adjacent. Andrew, how would you say? A treat. A treat. <laughs> Andrew one day was like, I dare you to open your door. And I was like, what? I texted her this. I didn't appear in her home and say this. <laughs> <laughs> Always a comforting thing to hear from family. And I opened the door and there was a package <gasps> and I opened it and there was a book inside. My gosh. So now technically I have a, I have shame, but it's kind of just a little treat. It's kind of like a little treat. A little surprise. Um, Andrew sent me the next book by Grady Hendrix, who wrote My Best Friend's Exorcism. The next one's called The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Ooh. I, I, I can't wait to, I can't wait to read it. I'm so excited. It, um, it looks fun. It's a spiritual sequel or like a sister novel. I think it takes place in the 90s versus the 80s, but it follows the same community in Charleston, but the moms, like the book club moms versus the kids. I did not know that. That's mm-hmm. cool. That's a cool idea. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I am psyched. Does anybody else have any shame to report? No. Why are you guys looking at me? Damn, <laughs> Dylan. Yeah, Dylan, what are you ashamed of? <laughs> this doesn't have anything to do with books either. This is just, do you have any secrets? Any, you know, sins? Look, what I do with my books in the privacy of my home. Guys, he looks so sinful. Is right my now. business. I'll take that as a no. No, no. no shame for you, Dylan. We do get an interesting shame, which is, uh, this is going to be a little inside baseball, but on the free bookshelf, someone in this apartment complex is also a screenwriter or part of the WGA or something. They're part of the Writers Guild of America mm-hmm. because around award season, they send out copies of famous movie scripts. Mm-hmm. So... I, I, I like that he's probably thinking like Bailey, like no one's going to read these, but I'll just put them out anyway. And I take a lot of them. So I now have the scripts for The Five Bloods, uh, Chicago 7, and Borat, the rest of the title. I forgot what it is. <laughs> Subsequent movie film of something of something. Yeah, it, it really drives me crazy when you bring those home. I know. Is the... <laughs> Is the is the script for Borat just like five like index cards stapled together that says make it up? It's no, they wrote a lot of it, it looks like. Hmm. I mean they won the um Golden Globe, right? Yeah. Toby, how many Golden Globes did you win? Um but I uh, refuse to three. Say. <laughs> Speaking of the free shelf outside our apartment, <gasps> on the free shelf outside our apartment, um, I may or may not have put out like mm, probably like at least 30 books. <laughs> many, many books. You filled the bookshelf. Along with our DVD collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a while, I just got guilty. And <laughs> I thought, I this is funny, I thought it was never going to come, that day was never going to come for you. I thought you had been like, this is the dump, and this is where the books go. <laughs> no, no, I was planning on doing this earlier, but it finally happened. I felt guilty. I brought them in. I dusted them off. Some of them had <laughs> a lot of dust on them. Some of them had like, a lot of spit on them. Nip Tuck season one was a little <laughs> worse for wear. Um, and now I'm going to donate them. Um, okay. But... Maybe put them in an actual little free library. Dylan is glaring at me. Here, here's the thing. I brought them back in. People took a lot of them. <laughs> no, they did not. Yes, they, they did. They took some of them. They took all the seasons of The Office. They took one out of six Harry Potter films. Not sure why. Which one? The Order of the Phoenix. Weird choice. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so that's, I don't know if that's shame, but something I have to deal with. Andrew, do you have any, <laughs> Andrew, do you have any shame? For once, I'm shameless. Ooh, Shameless, starring William H. Macy. 
Oh, I was going to say Shameless, the hit by Garth Brooks. It shows my references are a little different than Jackass. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I do have one other thing to talk about, which is for the first time in over a year, I went to a bookstore, like inside a bookstore, uh, but it was just to pick up a book I had to get for a book club. Um, and while I was there, I brought Maggie the baby and we picked up some baby books, like we picked up Madeline and something else. And while we were there, Maggie was chilling. And then all of a sudden, a dog came up and brushed her foot and she started screaming. Mm. And so my secret plan to make friends with the lady working at the bookstore and like talk to somebody that wasn't Dylan was failing because Maggie just couldn't get it together. So I learned that if you're born during a pandemic, everything is very, (laughs) very stimulating. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. So. I mean, dogs are scary enough for adult people. I can't imagine if it was like the size of like a Kodiak bear to me. I don't think I would like them either. I guess so. Even if they was brushing on my feet? No, thanks. But her first word was kitty. So you'd think like maybe. Yeah, but kitty is much smaller. It's only the size of her. True, true. Fair. That's like the size of a brown bear. <laughs> I mean, Billy, have you thought about the fact she might just not like books? Yeah. How dare Get you? Get me out of here. <laughs> Maggie, last night for the- I love f- that dog, but I hate this place. For the first time, Maggie turned pages in her book last night. It was very cute. And I just feel like this is a big day. This is a big milestone. <laughs> uh, yes. She can read before she can walk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, everyone, I know you're all on tenterhooks out there for Stormlight Archive. Oh, Doug Flett watch. Toby's dad watch. My dad watch. Yeah, the what's what's the what's the theme song to this? Shard, shard, shard. Shard blade, shard blade. He's on page eighty-five. He says he likes it, but he also said, "Is there a lot of fighting in it?" Because I don't like the fighting, and I was like, "Uh oh." <laughs> Isn't that the whole thing? It's a lot of it, so we'll see. Okay, 85 is pretty good. 85 is pretty good. He said he is enjoying it when he's reading it, but he's not reaching for it. He's mm. not like thinking about it, which is fair. It's, we'll give him some time. He's got 800 pages to get through. <laughs> and thus ends Shard Watch. Shard, 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 Shard. All right. So uh, we wanted to talk about something today before we get into our regularly scheduled reviews. Um, we here at the To Read List have made a mistake, and we would like to acknowledge that and, you know, make our choices in our language more intentional going forward. So we got an email from a listener and a friend. Her name is Christina. She explained how um, some of the language that we've used regarding audiobooks is ableist, and I completely agree with her. This listener is legally blind, and she was explaining how um, her experience with audiobooks is very different from an able-bodied person's. She doesn't have an opportunity to read a physical copy of a book. She brought up in particular um, a debate that is often had um, in the book reader community about whether or not audiobooks count as reading. And that is an ableist argument. That is an ableist debate because people who are blind or visually impaired are not able to read physical copies in the same way. And of course, you understand the information, retain it, whether or not, you know, the book is going through your ears or through your eyes. So we just want to be extremely clear here. And we apologize. I'm I feel really awful that we weren't as clear before that audiobooks are books, period. We're going to be intentional about our language going forward. And instead of saying, listen to the audiobook, we're going to say, we read the audiobook just to make it clear that it's reading. Um, And we encourage you guys to do the same yeah, because language really matters. um, And if we can make this a movement and make it clear that it's, it's ableist to 
distinguish between the two. Yeah. And, and we, frankly, I really appreciated that that she re- reached out to us and, and let us know. She did it in a very, very kind way. And I feel like we're all going to grow together. And if you hear something coming from us, something that you feel like is we could be more careful with what we're saying or, or more caring in how we're saying it, please let us know. It, it, we want to grow and we want to make this a, an inclusive podcast for, for all our listeners. Yeah. With the listener's permission, I'm going to read a little bit of her email just so you guys can, you know, put on your empathy hats. That's the wrong word. You know what I mean. I like it. Okay. So she says, at the end of the day, I think that if our old definition of reading doesn't quite fit with the way reading is evolving in the modern world, we should redefine reading. Why would we exclude certain parts of the population from something that many find so fundamentally important? As a legally blind person, I've had to come to terms with what I'm not able to do for my whole life, and being able to read is of particular importance to me. Since I stopped reading for pleasure for about 10 years due to assigned reading for school and lack of easy access to audiobooks. Maybe it's that prolonged lack of access that makes me feel so strongly about this. Starting to read again felt like reconnecting to a part of myself I had lost, a reminder that it's my eyes that struggle, not my imagination, critical thinking skills, or curiosity. So thank you, Christina, for that email, and we're going to do better going forward. Yeah, thank you. Andrew, I hear you interacted with old Babby Kings. <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, if by what you mean, I read a book and that book was by Barbara Kingsolver, you are correct, That's Toby. what I call it, interacting with Babby Kings. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, I read Unsheltered by Barbara Kingsolver. Ooh, um... Solve for King. Plants on the cover. Kingsolver! <laughs> dang it, Dylan! Kingsolver! I cannot stress how much Dylan just gets to sit in the dang background. <laughs> <laughs> Come out with gold like Kingsolver! I have a question for the group. When you're singing King Solver, are you doing it to the tone of Goldfinger or Moon River? I was about to ask you that. I intend to do it to Goldfinger, but it always comes out as Moon River. Yeah. How often do you guys do this? <laughs> I do it actually a lot. When I, like a, a joke that would fit the Goldfinger format, but I do it in the Moon River tone. Mm. So yes, actually a lot. <laughs> Guys, I think we need to have more going on in our lives. <laughs> so yeah, I read Unsheltered by the Solver of Kings. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And here is a little bit about it. In Barbara Kingsolver's novel, Unsheltered, two echoing narratives play off each other across centuries, each taking place in the same small New Jersey town, comparing the fight against Darwin's ideas to the 2016 presidential election. It's a novel about how we survive, the anguish and anger of being wrong, the hollowness of collective promises, carnivorous plants, and the fundamental frictions of family. One of the things is not like the other. Yeah, the hollowness of collective promises. (laughs) (laughs) Plant science is so hot right now. Mm. I didn't realize this was such a recent book. Yeah, it is. I think it's her most recent novel. Correct me if I'm wrong, Toby. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my research is more like a feeling than like a bunch of facts. It's like jazz. Alternative (laughs) facts. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, on the back, one of the like pull quotes talks about it being the first novel to deal head on with the Trump era. So it's it's relatively recent and it contains a lot of stuff that's like, yeah, no, this was what those primaries were like in 2016 and 2015. But we'll get into that maybe a little bit, but also maybe not. Mm. 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 So to give you a little more info about just sort of the general setup of this bad boy. As I said in that summary, it's a it's a dual narrative. So we have two separate stories that interact like perfectly alternating chapter by chapter. You get exactly nine chapters from one and exactly nine from the other. Of the, the two narratives, the first one is contemporary to when she was writing it. It's obviously like four to five years in the past now, but it follows 
this family, specifically this character named Willa, who is a mother of two grown children and her husband, uh, who are living in this house that they um, they inherited in this town in New Jersey called Vineland, which is like a former utopian community mm. that has just become a regular, like kind of rundown Jersey town. And they have Iano's father, who's so that. The children's grandfather, her father-in-law, Nick, living with him. And he's like the Trumpiest of Trumpers, basically. But he's also dying of emphysema slash uh, COPD. And the house is just falling down. And that's sort of the central conceit of the of the book in that storyline, which is that they're living in a house that literally and figuratively cannot stand. It's falling apart around them. They have no money to fix it. And it brings together a lot of things from that era, like student loan debt comes into it as a reason why they don't have money to fix the house. Uh, loss of, of tenure that Yana, who's an academic, had because his college went under. All these things that were happening around that time. Willa herself is a former journalist whose uh, print magazine went out of uh, business. So no one's bringing in any money and their adult children come to live with them. And mm. one of their adult children also is a new single father because his not wife, but partner committed suicide when the baby was five months old. So that's a lot. And I Damn. don't expect you all to remember that. But just remember, a lot of bad stuff's happening to that family in modern times in New Jersey. And there's a carnivorous plant. <laughs> So that brings us to the second narrative, which takes place in the same house 140 years in the past, in the 1870s. Um, and it follows this guy named Thatcher Greenwood, who has recently moved in there with his new bride, her mother, and her younger daughter when they inherited the house. And also follows him, who is, he's a progressive scientific thinker. Um, and across the street lives this real life character named Mary Treat, who was a contemporary and colleague of Darwin and had correspondence with him. Uh, and this town doesn't like Darwinism, so get ready for that. And so those are the two narratives, and it, both of them have the similar themes of the houses falling down, like needing to find money, and just promises not being kept in terms of like, I was promised prosperity, I was promised if I mm -hmm. did my work, I would get tenure, I would be, have security in my future, etc. I already want to read this book. I like Barbara King Solver, and this sounds cool. All right, well, let's get into pros and cons and see. Uh -oh. <laughs> it's sounding to me too similar to Signature of All Things, so I'm going to hold uh, off okay. until Andrew explains more. Yeah, I had a moment where I literally texted Bailey a picture of a page I was reading that had the word mosses on it, <laughs> and I circled it a bunch. So yeah, I mean, I have a lot of pros for this book, and I have a fair few cons. So they're elves and orcs in equal measure. It's basically Helm's Deep up in here. Ooh. Mm. So... The number one pro I have for this book is that King Solver is a great writer. And like, as Toby said, like you like King Solver, you're excited about just reading a book based on sort of like a basic premise you're hearing because I think it, she's someone you would trust as a writer to, to yeah. deal with those things. And most of the time she delivers. So she's a great craftswoman of, of words with tight sentences that, that strike a really good balance of being evocative and emotional, but being like understandable and clarifying, which I think is kind of rare. So let mm -hmm. me give you two quotes from the book, and those will be all I read. One from each of the competing narratives, or each of the dual narratives. This one is from the contemporary one. It's on page 11, and it's talking about Willa missing her uh, since-deceased mother. Really, it was her mother she wanted to call right now after the bad news, or in the middle of it, while Mr. Petrofaccio was blowing his nose. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, Whenever a fight with Tig left her in pieces, it had been her mother who put Willa back together. When someone mattered like that, you didn't lose her at death. You lost her as you kept living. Ugh. So, right? Good writing. Yeah, that, yeah, that's beautifully put and very sad. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, objectively, great writing. Here's um, a quote from Thatcher's narrative, our, our 1870s Darwinist friend, talking about meeting a heron when he was swimming as a, as a boy. He had a childhood memory of floating in shallow water near a heron with his eyes just at the surface, his belly skimming mud, trying to draw close, mesmerized by the graceful locomotion. He was near enough to touch it when the head suddenly reared back like a dagger drawn to strike, and the boy leaped up from the shallows, startling the bird and himself, heart pounding, reckoning how near he'd come to just losing an eye. It never came naturally to Thatcher to see any life as enemy to his own. Even in that place where anything not human was apt to be claimed as food, no place for a boy who longed to know a heron. Mm. Such great sensory details, even just like the belly skimming the mud. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm picturing it. That's great. But yeah, so if you're looking for a book with a lot of sentences like that, check it out. I mean, it's really good. She's a really great writer. And this, the orcs that I'll get into later bear no no impact on me wanting to read more of her work. I know that was an elf, but that could be the best orc ever. Like, yeah, so if you're looking for a book with a lot of sentences like that, here you go. <laughs> Uh, that was my note with the book. It had too many sentences in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so I really liked the writing. It was great to spend, you know, 500-ish pages with that sort of writing. Um, and th- to that effect, it read faster than a, around a 500-page book usually does for me. So even though it dragged a little bit in places, I still was able to finish it with actually reasonably little stress, which was not what I thought the case was going to be, <laughs> as I didn't start the book until about five days before I needed to <laughs> review it on this podcast. Um, a few last just sort of popcorn elves, things that really got me in the book, uh, the relationship of the young grandson that Willa takes in, um, and mother-daughter dynamic of Willa and her daughter uh, Tig, which is short for Antigone, along with the juxtaposed sibling relationship of Tig and Zeke, who's her, her brother. Um, I thought she just had this great way of, of expressing complicated family dynamics without like really digging into them as much as just showing how they reacted and you being able to discern that. That's the kind of writing that I really respect. Mm. And so I, I liked seeing that. And in the 1870s section, which I haven't given quite as much love to, the relationship between Thatcher and Mary Treat, the the, the scientist across the across the road, was really strong. And I kept like in each chapter, you would sort of just get one little story. And anytime Mary Treat wasn't one of the characters, I was kind of bummed because mm-hmm. I really liked their dynamic. It wasn't that the other characters in that section were bad. It was just like the fun parts of that story involved um, Mary Treat and the science that they were talking about. It's like when I used to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer and get really excited when Seth. Seth Green's name would come up in the credits. I was like, oh, it's going to be a good episode. <laughs> it's just like that. Yeah. Mary Treat, Seth Green, exactly the same. And then one last thing I'll mention about the 1870 section that was really fun, but also frustrating, but I think intentionally frustrating, is that she does a great job writing the arguments for anti-Darwinism. Hmm. So like the people who are like, well, you know, the going theory is that God parted the waters and the animals walked to North America. <laughs> and they're like, but we never saw it. No one saw that. You have no evidence of it. And he's like, well, I don't need evidence of that. That's what we believe. <laughs> And it was just such like a banging at your head against a wall moment um, that was so like fun, funly frustrating, if that makes sense. I think my favorite character of Andrews is anti-Darwinist number one. (laughs) Well, well, that's what I believe. I mean, that's even that's like they get even more. 
more specific and wild, which is, is pretty fun. But yeah, I mean, obviously, fundamentally very frustrating, but but fun to see written out that way. I was going to say, so we've heard the popcorn elves. What about the popcorn orcs? Yeah, so I'll, I'll move to my orcs. Not all of the book just got me excited. Like, it wasn't really tied to specific characters or like specific sides of the story. I, I liked both of the two dual narratives. It just didn't like excite me. Sometimes it just kind of fell flat. Mm-hmm. In the interest of being like a, a good reviewer, I'll give one example. The dynamic between the sort of very conservative father-in-law and Willa, it rang very true and like it seemed like accurate, but it didn't seem as like keenly observed as the other dynamics. It seemed more sort of like talking pointsy side. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And especially maybe that felt very fresh and new laid out very plainly in when this book came out. But after, you know, four years of that dude, uh, you just get tired of it. So it wasn't like thrilling for me to read it. It was just kind of like, oh, God, OK, we're talking about this guy. again. Yeah. Um, yeah. As soon as you mentioned that there was that kind of aspect to the book, I was worried because it's just it seems like books, especially ones published kind of at the time when everything was going down, they just have no pun intended did a very short shelf life because it's like they're immediately relevant and wow they're so perceptive when they come out and then a couple years later as you mentioned you're like well i've heard all this a million times i'm kind of worried about that when i mean are you guys going to want to read books or see movies about covid when this is all done no, no. yeah no andrew it's almost as if like somebody warned you that like Robert king silver is like fine what? I, I do feel bad for being snippy about that, Bailey. However, <laughs> I stand by the fact that I had read one of her books and I really, really liked that book. So I was excited and didn't want to be influenced against her work <laughs> ahead of diving into another one. You should always just listen to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I'll, let me just go through these orcs real quick. Yep. For such a long book, it feels like it ends abruptly and doesn't quite hit the highs or even the lows that it promised. Like, it seems like things are going either really good or really bad a lot. And it kind of, to me, felt like it settled into a middle, which, you know, it's not why you read a book to sort of have it just kind of peter out. And here is why the book is going to have the rating it has. And like fundamentally, just my experience of reading the book, I can just tell I'm not going to think about this book or it's not going to live on in my brain that much. Mm. Like, Mm. it, it, it was perfectly fine, as Bailey said a perfectly fine book. I enjoyed reading parts of it and it did keep my interest to the very end, but like, I don't think I'm ever going to want to reread it. Yeah. So with that said, it's a, it's a three star book mm. and we don't have a, a free shelf in our, in our apartment that gets a lot of action. So I don't know if I'll put it there or I'll look to donate it somewhere, but I don't, I don't think I'll reread it. So I think I should give it to someone who might. Mm. Andrew, do you think you judged it a little more? You can tell me if I'm wrong, but for me, the Poisonwood Bible, which is the other one that I've read of hers, uh, that one set the bar so high and sometimes I read an author where it's like they knock one out of the park and I'm like here we go number two it's gonna hit that mark no oh no uh do you think it suffered a little bit from that like the letdown yeah no I think to a certain degree but I also just think this didn't do anything to hurt my like regard in which I I hold her as a writer so yes but also like I still want to read the lacuna mm-hmm. or any one of the other yeah. things she's she's brought out. So yes, but also I still think she's a great writer and I still want to read more of her work. Well, you've dissuaded me from ever reading a Barbara King Solver again. So thanks thanks for that, Andrew. So we all agree she's just fine. Uh, Toby, <laughs> do you have any facts on no, Babs I won't even, Kings? I'm, I'm joking. She's great. 
Uh, Barbara Kingsolver was born April 8th. It'll be her birthday tomorrow, uh, 1955. She's an American novelist, essayist, and poet. She was raised in rural Kentucky and lived briefly in the Congo in her early childhood. Kingsolver earned degrees in biology at DePaul University and University of Arizona and worked as a freelance writer before she began writing novels. Her widely known works include The Poisonwood Bible, which we've mentioned here, and Animal Vegetable Miracle, which is a non-fiction account of her family's attempts to eat locally. Her work often focuses on topics such as social justice, biodiversity, and the interaction between humans and their communities and environments. Each of her books published since 1993 has been on the New York Times bestseller list. She's received many awards, including the Dayton Literary Peace Prize's Richard C. Holbrook Distinguished Achievement Award in 2011, the UK's Orange Prize for Fiction uh, for, for the Lacuna, and the National Humanities Medal. She's been nominated for the Penn Faulkner Award and the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, but how many kings has she solved? I mean, clearly all of them. <laughs> when she was seven years old, her father, who was a physician, took the family to Leopoldville, Congo. Her parents worked in a public health capacity, and the family lived without electricity or running water. Kingsolver began her full-time writing career in the mid-1980s as a science writer for the university, which eventually led to some freelance feature writing, including many cover stories for the local alternative weekly, the Tucson Weekly. She began her career in fiction writing after winning a short story contest in a local Phoenix newspaper. In 1985, she married Joseph Hoffman. Their daughter Camille was born in 1987. Here's a fun fact that some of you may know. In the late 1990s, she was a founding member of the Rock Bottom Remainders, a rock and roll band made up of published writers. Other band members include Amy Tan, Matt Groening, Dave Barry, and Stephen King. What instrument did she play? I will tell you. They play for one week during the year, every year, except for probably last year. King Solver played the keyboard, but is no longer an active member of the band. <gasps> Okay, the rest of this is from an interview with Psychology Today on the publication of Unsheltered. Uh, the interviewer, Jennifer Hopped, asks, This novel weaves together two very different time periods with parallel stories that touch on the same themes of tolerance, social disruption, and the difficulties of raising a family in a seemingly crumbling world. What prompted you to use the post-Civil War historical backdrop to contrast with the contemporary backdrop? King Solver answers, I wanted to write about how scary it is to give up familiar expectations, even when our old rules no longer apply very well to new times. Humans are such fascinating creatures. In this moment we're experiencing scarcity and failure of our shelter at so many levels economic social environmental but we still keep believing more growth and consumption will fix everything it seems to be the only tool in our kit so we keep trying my novel compares the current crisis with an earlier one when the u.s was economically and socially devastated by war and the news arrived from charles darwin that humans are perhaps not the bosses of all life on earth but in fact subject to natural laws just like all other species this suggestion brought down the house not in a good way people hung darwin in effigy and rallied around any leader who promised to hold on to the past rather than to accept new realities times may change but some aspects of the human psyche never will yep 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 um the interviewer asks tell me more about the theme of adaptability in this novel king solver answers history is cyclical and we will ride out this tyrannical government we will survive this interview was deep in the throes of the previous administration adaptability fascinates me in biology and societies and the human psyche i do think looking at the past can throw some light on the present unfortunately i can make no promises that will survive as a novelist i have no special gift for predicting the future nor do i see that as my job my interest is to invite you as a reader into an interesting conversation with yourself Jeez, barbara that's well put yeah and here's the last uh the last question the interviewer asks 
What do you hope readers will take away from this novel that may provide some hope? King Solver answers, The magic of a literary novel is that it isn't just one thing. It's a different experience for every reader. What we take away from it is framed by the experience and questions we bring to it. The novels I read in my youth, when I reread them again years later, always land very differently because I become a different person. Anyone is invited to take what he or she wants from Unsheltered. I hope you'll get absorbed, have a good time, and come out the other side with a satisfaction based on your own nutritional needs as a reader. The only thing that I can promise is that it's not going Going to leave you in despair because I'm me and that's not what I do. Not Bobby Kings. Bobby Kings? No, no. No despair. despair. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Get out of here. Mm-mm. Get out of here with that. Well, awesome facts, Toby, and great, great review, Andrew. Unsheltered by Bobby Kings, Barbara King Silver, three stars. Bobby Kings. Boom, boom, boom. Bailey, I heard that you read a book, but your head was turned backwards on your neck. <laughs> it was a weird day for me. Uh, yes. Jesus, Andrew, you really bent over backwards for that one. There we go. A bunch of word vomit, really. I feel like I'm losing my mind. <laughs> All right, guys. Yes, I did read a book. You'll never believe it. It's <gasps> called My Best Friends Exorcism by Grady Hendrix. Oh, exorcise, exorcise, exorcise. Yeah. Holy you water. like a Grady. Anyway, uh, yes. Spoiler alert, I love this book. Mm. (laughs) Spoiler alert, I read it too. And spoiler alert, I read it. And spoiler (laughs) alert, this is my review. There will be no spoilers because Andrew wants to read it. Also, (laughs) listener, Pedro, I want you to read this book, so I'm not going to spoil it for you. Okay, here's what this book is about. Cut to Charleston. We're in the 80s. We're having fun. (laughs) Bailey's doing a fun little shoulder wiggle. Yeah. It follows uh, our protagonist, Abby, um, who is kind of out of place um, when she's a younger elementary school kid. Um, And it starts at her birthday party where the worst thing possible could happen, which is everybody else goes to another birthday party, except for one girl, Gretchen, who shows up and says, well, but your invites went out first. So clearly, you know, the rules are I come here. And I'm like, yes, Gretchen, correct. When I read this scene, I was like, there's no better way to appeal to Bailey than to (laughs) clearly lay out some rules and how some people broke them and some people didn't and the people who didn't break them are good and the people who did break them are bad (laughs) bad. so they form a friendship there and then we cut to when they are sophomores in high school and they are best friends and have two other friends um, Margaret and Glee so we're in sophomore year Um, they are now the most popular girls in school and well it's called my best friend's exorcism so Mm. let's just you know I don't want to spoil it but imagine there's two best friends Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, something might happen that's, you know, satanic. Mm-hmm. Take your take your mind to a quiet place and imagine what might happen in a book called My Best Friend's <laughs> Exorcism. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, that's essentially the premise. I don't... Do you guys think I should include any more details? Yeah, I agree with all that. And I, I think one of my favorite things is like the atmosphere of the town. He does really well. And the 80s atmosphere. It feels uh, very much like one of those like movies that they make about the 80s now where everyone's kind of like winking at the camera a little bit, but mm-hmm. not in an annoying way, like a fun way where we're all like, look at their hair. Yeah. They're listening to all these bops that we all like. I think Grady Hendrix is a great writer. And I think he's especially great at, like you said, Toby, setting up the time and the place by even just like a certain detail where it's Mm -hmm. like roller rink, we got the beat. And you're Mm -hmm. like... I'm there. I know exactly what you're talking about. And even just these little cultural things like they're reading V.C. Andrews or whatever it yeah. is. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, he, I'm there. He name drops V.C. Andrews hard. Yeah. Like deep into the V.C. Andrews catalog. Heck yes. Yeah. So yeah, so absolutely the time and place is really good. The writing is also really good. Um, I'm going to share a little bit of it. Um, but it also, he's very good, I think, of setting up atmospheres and making things scary and gross. Um when they should be. So here's an example of a scary scene. We're at nighttime. We're by a river. 
page 61. Up ahead, the trees thinned and moonlight shone dull gray on something square and black painted in the ground. Abby slowed as she walked into the clearing. It was a ruined blockhouse, just a simple one-room rectangle, its thick tabby walls burned black, the roof collapsed. A single blind window stared out, and it was impossible to shake the sense that something was looking out at her. That's when she saw the darkness inside the blockhouse start to move. That's when Abby realized the cicadas had stopped screaming. Her heart shifted into fourth gear. She didn't know where she was. She had never heard about any buildings back there. There couldn't be anything inside it, but something in there was moving, and Abby couldn't look away. The darkness inside was deeper. She could see through the window, twisting around itself, squirming, rolling, undulating, and something was buzzing, a sinister sizzle she could feel through her feet, humming deep underground. Ooh. Atmospheric and scary. It was her best friend, buzzing. (laughs) You can just imagine, like, what's the band, Dylan, that does the Suspiria soundtrack? Goblin. Goblin. Just like the Goblin soundtrack in the background. Very 80s. So I think the writing's really good. He also, um, it's not just a pulpy teen novel. I think he brings up some really interesting themes, like um, the relationship between kids and the parents. The kids are often talking to their parents and teachers about what's going on. Like, haven't you noticed this person is clearly possessed? And they're just like, you kids are on drugs. Mm-hmm. And they just totally discount them and don't listen. I thought that was interesting. Um, they also talk about being in the South and the class issues there. Um, this was a great quote for that. In Charleston, the day you become an adult is the day you learn to ignore your neighbor's drunk driving and focus instead on whether he submitted a paint color change proposal to the Board of Architectural Review. The day you become an adult is the day you learn that in Charleston, the worse something is, the less attention it receives. I just thought it was really showed me what this town was like, mm-hmm. um, what it would be like to grow up there, and what would happen if this supernatural thing happened there and nobody wanted to acknowledge it. Also, obviously, the themes of female friendship were really strong and I thought really powerful. I found it really moving, the relationship between Abby and Gretchen. I cried twice. Um oh. I bet you guys can guess when, but I'm not going to say because that would be a spoiler. And <laughs> I bet you can guess, but don't you dare. And um, what, one other thing that I really liked is Grady Hendrix. I know because, as we talked about before during this pandemic, I've just been obsessively listening to one podcast, and that podcast is Teen Creeps. If you haven't heard of it, you would enjoy it, but they go through pulpy fiction books. And one of them was this book. Um, and then they had an interview with Grady Hendrix, and he just knows everything about the genre. So... What I liked about this book was it was clearly a play on the genre. He understood it and he fulfilled all the beats. We got the beat. But <laughs> but he also subverted your expectations because you have certain expectations. Having seen the movie The Exorcist or no, seeing exorcisms in movies, how you think it's going to play out and it doesn't play out the way you think it's going to be, you'll see. I don't want to I don't want to spoil it. No mm-hmm. spoiling. I really like this book. I gave it five stars. I, I'm really psyched for the book Andrew sent me. I can't wait to read all of Grady Hendrix's other stuff. Um, but, you know, let's throw it to the dudes. What'd you guys think? Hey, dude. Hi there. Welcome to Dude Corner. They will be talking. <laughs> dude Corner is just the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> the place where dudes can feel free to talk about dude stuff. Yeah, no, I really like the book. It's amazing how smooth like the plot is on like it feels I love these books that feel like it either took place over the course of a week or like six months Hmm. just the timing of it and especially the character you were mentioning like the uh girl friendship part being a huge part of it like their friendship was so interesting in terms of the dynamic because like normally you have when a friend in a high school movie it's just these three best friends that hang out all the time it's like no you have like okay friends you yeah. have like mm-hmm. and friendships all of a sudden like dissolve and i think that's a huge part of it is uh, like talking about why people are friends and why they stay together i think the one thing is and you're mentioning it 
it hitting the beats it felt like he didn't have a time limit on it but it felt towards the end a little rushed where mm-hmm. it's like oh shoot i have to get like all this plot in and it was fine but i think there was such a huge build up to the plot that like it feels like there's a bunch of extreme beats that all hit at the same time mm-hmm. yeah i hear you but disagree Toby. I, I, nope. I agree with that i know but it's still and I, it does such a good job i really liked some of the aftermath scenes as well because i was kind of worried since that was so rushed but it did like pull out at the end too of like oh, okay there were, this book was trying to say something and it did Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, no, so I give it four stars. All right. Now, Toby, bring it all down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I enjoyed this book for many of the reasons that Bailey and Dylan did. I won't just repeat those, um, but I did enjoy it a lot. Unfortunately, I am just going to say my orcs because I don't want to repeat a bunch of stuff. My orcs would be that um, I felt like the kind of ironic tone where sometimes we were fully in this 80s world and sometimes we were com- commenting on it. Mm-hmm. It, it went back and forth uh, from scene to scene for me, and, it, and I could never how like what is it are we engaging with this world and taking it seriously or are we looking at it ironically and it just felt like well this scene i think it'd be funnier this way but this scene is serious so that kind of took me out of it um and then without giving away any spoilers uh the ending fell flat for me um it didn't um not the very end but the part before the very end for people who have read it but i don't want it to sound like i'm just you know saying terrible things about this book i did really enjoy it but in the end i had to give it three stars i actually would be excited to read the southern book club's guide to slaying vampires because i feel like this had a lot of promise and i feel like it seems like he's gonna get better and better mm-hmm. so i'm into it i'll probably read another one only one uh rebuttal i'll give is that it's told from the beginning from abby's perspective in the present day mm-hmm. or from at least the future from when the events took place so i feel like when we look back on our childhood we might have like wink and nod sometimes and other times we think it's very serious so i could go back and forth on this but i i accept okay do you have any facts on Grady E. Hendrix? I do. Grady Hendrix is an American author, journalist, public speaker, and screenwriter known for his best-selling 2014 novel, Horror Store. Have you guys heard of this? Yes. Uh, for those of you not familiar with it, it's a genius idea, which is basically something's wrong in Ikea. There's like haunted happenings in Ikea, and a couple of employees volunteer to stay there overnight. What a great idea. He lives in Manhattan and was one of the founders of the New York Asian Film Festival. He worked in the library of the American Society for Cyclical Research before turning to professional writing. In 2014, Quirk Books published his original debut novel, Horror Store. Grady then wrote My Best Friend's Exorcism 2016 and the acclaimed nonfiction study Paperbacks from Hell, The Twisted History of 70s and 80s Horror Fiction in 2017. My Best Friend's Exorcism and Horror Store have been optioned for film adaptations, while the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires is slated for a television adaptation. Um, He's also done a bunch of other projects. Uh, smaller books, and he has a podcast called Super Scary Haunted Homeschool. Um, on his webpage, he has a bunch of cool little projects that he has going on, on his website. One of them I really enjoyed uh, was called Book Reviews of the Damned, and this is his explanation of what it is. Here you will find reviews of the trashiest books ever written, forgotten classics, paperback head spinners, and just plain weird. Someone had to read these books, and thank God it's not you. So here are some of the books he reviewed on that, on that list with his taglines. The book is called The Last Canadian, and this is his tagline. <laughs> Uh, his, his tagline is only because there can only be one. <laughs> um, and then I had to give a little bit more information uh, because I, I read the review. He said this rare, rare paperback cost $90. Whoa. So no one has it. And the protagonist isn't even Canadian. He's American. <laughs> um, there's a, he read a book and reviewed it called The Little People. Here's his tagline for it. Nazi leprechauns born in concentration camps and engineered for sin. Whoa. Uh, oh, wow. 
Wasn't expecting that. No, <laughs> no you weren't. Uh, he reviewed one called Phantom of the Soap Opera. And he said, if you want to move to NYC and star in soap operas, you must read this one book. And another poll I had, he had one called The Abyss. No, not the James Cameron movie. His tagline is, it's like Bruce Springsteen rewrote Dante's Inferno, only with more beer. <laughs> Here's the thing, you guys. Why can't you write log lines like that? <laughs> That's true. They're very good love lines. So this is from Medium.com, an interview with Grady Hendrix about my best friend's exorcism. Uh, why did you decide to set this novel in the 1980s? If I was going to write about possession, but not do it from a strictly Christian point of view, I needed to decide on something that people had faith in that wasn't necessarily God. And I realized that the thing that I believed in with that level of commitment were my friends. And the time that friendships are the most intense is in high school. I can't convincingly write about modern day high school without doing a ton of research, but I know my high school experience pretty well. And I was in 10th grade back in 1980s. So the fact this book is set in the 80s has more to do with laziness than anything else. Tight. A lot of people say that that's why Stephen King set stuff in the 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the story behind the dynamic cover art on the paperback? It's really good. Uh, and he answers, that's Doogie Horner's work. He's the art director for Quirk Books, and he's a twisted genius. He wanted the paperback to have a different cover than the hardback, but we didn't have enough time to do it. But he insisted and found Hugh Fleming, an Australian artist who's done a ton of Star Wars work, and they got this done in short order. It's really amazing. And I have to agree, it's pretty dope. Here's a question. The friendship between Abby and Gretchen is both moving and believable. How did you pull this off? And he answers, this book was totally pulled from my life. Everything that happened in it happened to me, give or take a demon from hell or two. And I was lucky to have a lot of real friendships to draw on. Bad Mamma Jamma existed. Given the influence of William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, do you think it's difficult to write unique and original stories on the subject of exorcism these days? Most stories about exorcism wind up being about some old dudes yelling at a girl tied to a bed, unfortunately, and that's pretty played out and gross. You can still write a good exorcism or possession story, especially now, as long as you really think about what you're doing. Here's a question. Why do you think people are still drawn to stories of demonic possession? Possession is a great metaphor for the way people change, whether it's through aging or having different experiences or through drugs or mental illness. Having someone suddenly change is hugely traumatic for the people around them. So possession works as a way to process through that fiction. It's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. And then here's my favorite. I love when sometimes it seems like the interviewee gets a little snippy with the interviewer. <laughs> so the question is, William Peter Blatty believed that demonic possession was a real phenomenon. Do you? And the answer is... Do I think that there are non-human entities who control a person's actions? No. Do I think that demonic possession is a useful metaphor for some people to process things in their lives? Of course. Aww. And that's how he shut that interviewer down, asking him if he believes in exorcism. And that's Grady Hendrix. Seems like a cool guy. Yeah. His book coming out, um, I don't know if it's this year or soon, is called The Final Girls Support Group. I'm so excited. Like, it looks good. Yeah. Like the last person in a horror movie, the one who survives, and they're all in a support group together. Come on. He's the best at coming up with ideas. That sounds good. Grady facts, Toby. Thank you, Dylan. All right. So that's My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix. Five stars, because my opinion is what matters. And <laughs> that's it. Uh... Andrew, do you have a game? I do. Yay. Y'all want to play a wicked and spooky game? Yes. Yes. Ooh. Ooh. So the name of this game this week is called Untitled Jersey Devil Game. <laughs> okay. I, I wrote the document. I started the word doc and called it Untitled Jer Jersey Devil Game and then never changed it. So here we are. <laughs> what, what about uh, the devil went down to your jersey? What about my best friend's devil? Nope. Those are all bad. Down to be the Jersey Devil. Just kidding. So this 
game is actually a return to sort of more of our old style. I'm having a lot of fun with these more narrative-based games, but I want to, you know, remember where I came from. Yeah, it's important. So the way this game will work, and credit to my friend Dylan Evans, who pointed out the website weirdnewjersey.com, which was very helpful in figuring this out, or sorry, weirdnj.com. Doesn't Chris Gethard run that? He he did in college. Okay. Um, So yes, it's the same website that Chris Gethard ran in college. So credit to uh, Dylan Evans and weirdnj.com, and by extent, I suppose, Chris Gethard, uh, for providing me the information here. The way the game's going to work is I'm going to read you two unexplained or spooky phenomenon that are part of the folklore of Jersey. One of them will be true. One of them will be made up. Um, You will go in turns and you will guess which one is real and which one I made up. You each will get three. I have a tiebreaker if you end up tied at the end. Okay. Copy that. Simple enough. No no complicated persona to assume or... Fishing dad. No fishing dad. No, if, if we always do that, they're not going to be as fun. That's true. Who would like to go first? Let's say the first person who says something goes first. Me. I'll do it. <laughs> All right. Wow. I was expecting someone to jump with it. Uh, Toby, you get to go first and you get the easier questions. Great. What? Just kidding. I think they're of equal difficulty. <laughs> okay. All right. Here you go, Toby. Your first pairing to pick between. Big red eye, a Bigfoot-like creature traced to Northwest Jersey with glowing red eyes. Mm-hmm. Or old blue eyes, a Nessie-like sea serpent who lives in Lake Egret in Mawa. I'm going to go big red eye. And that is correct. Yes. One point for Toby. Mm. Big red eye is a real Jersey cryptid. Nice. Well, I say real Jersey real. cryptid. It's real. You heard it here, real. folks. And old blue eyes is Frank Sinatra. <laughs> well, he's from Newark. Oh, there you go. Oh. So, Well, actually, Secaucus? I don't know. He's from Jersey. Either way. All right, Bailey, are you ready? Yes. Oh, I should say before we keep going, the reason I chose this game is that Unsheltered takes place in New Jersey and uh, features the Pine Barrens, which is the rumored home of the Jersey Devil. Mm. And my best friend's exorcism. Naturally, I had to get into the Jersey Devil in here somehow. That makes sense. I like it. Yeah. There we go. Uh, Bailey, your turn. Okay. The ghost town of the Pine Barrens, a village that lost travelers in the Pine Barrens have reported stumbling upon where everyone who lives there believes it to still be the Civil War. And Shades of Death Road, a street in Warren County with grim lore around it, sometimes tracing to a plague where they did not have room in their morgues. I'm going to go with the first one. The ghost town of the Pine Barrens? Yeah. A wise choice. If you want to be incorrect, Shades of Death Road is correct. So Toby leads one nil. Heck yeah. Rude. All right, Toby, your turn. I'm ready. The Rawway Ransackings, a long-standing cold case where a series of households woke up to find the entirety of their home ravaged, tables broken, carpet shredded, but no sign of forced entry. Ooh. And no harm to the families, I should also say. And then the Tom's River Terror, a haunted house that has forced many families to leave and which a reporter named Eric Larson claimed to hear the voice of a long-dead child. I'm going to have to go with the one that you included Eric Larson in because I feel like you wouldn't sneak that in a fake one. Yeah, that's fair. I couldn't yes. I was reading the article on Weird NJ. I had this link to this summary of the story, and it was this reporter named Eric Larson. I think even spelled the same way. I don't think it's the same person um, who wrote for a cryptid website. He's been dead for 30 years. He's possessed. Well, Toby, you're knocking out of the park. Bailey, you need to get this correct to have any chance of even tying Toby. Yeah, you do. All right, here are your two, Bailey. The High Bridge Incident in which a couple in the 1950s claimed to have contact with alien visitors from Venus who were vegetarians. <laughs> and the Asbury Park Aliens, a town made famous by Bruce Springsteen, also has another claim to fame, a series of UFO sightings that were later blamed on marsh gases. Hmm. I don't know if there are marshes in New Jersey, so I'm going to go with the first one. Highbridge Incident? Yep. 
That is a bad choice. <laughs> if you want it to be wrong, because oh. that is correct, Bailey. <laughs> it goes both ways. Dang. There you go. All right. So, Bailey, you have one point. Toby, you have two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now it's time for your final question, Toby. I'm ready. The Acto Ghost. The ghost of a boy who was killed by a drunk driver who is said to appear if you honk three times on Burnt Mill Road in the Pine Barrens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the ghost of Red Stream Road, a Victorian-era woman who is said to stare into the houses of a small country road. People say they'll look up from washing dishes and see her staring into their house. I'm going to go with the ghost of Red Stream Road, please, Andrew. That is incorrect. No. The Acto Ghost is the real one. Nah. I'm sorry you got that wrong, Toby, but I'm happy you got it wrong so that there's some real drama on this last question. Dun, dun, dun. Are you ready? Yes. All right. The Bedford Banshee, a ghostly figure who wanders the roads of New Jersey and is said to portend car accidents, though maybe folks are just making excuses. And then the Woodbridge Cemetery Snake, a legend about a snake who wrapped itself around a coffin. Anyone who made eye contact was said to be doomed to certain death. I mean, I got to go with a snake. Snake is cool. Snake is cool. I go with snake. And the snake is correct. Good job. Oh, man. All right. But I'm so glad, actually. Okay. I really wanted the tiebreaker. Tiebreaker. Break that tie. Tiebreaker. <laughs> so the tiebreaker was within you all along because the name of this game has been Untitled Jersey Devil Game. Mm-hmm. For the win, you guys each need to describe what the most common description of the Jersey Devil is. It's a combination of a few different creatures. Whoever gets closest wins. Okay. Okay. Raccoon I- snake. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's um. I think it's like Raccoon a raccoon snake pig. A little man with blue fur. What and. What kind of creature is that? Snarly teeth and big ears and yellow eyes. I'm going to stick with raccoon snake pig, please. Oh, this is tough because you're both so wrong. (laughs) But I'm going to go with Toby because he went more with the combination of animals, which is what the Jersey Devil is. So, Toby, congratulations on your win. For those keeping track at home, the Jersey Devil is often described, quoting Wikipedia, the common description is that of a bipedal kangaroo-like creature with horse or goat-like head, bat-like wings, horns, and cloven hooves. Cloven hooves, like a pig. There you go. Trotters. There but biped, boom, boom, like boom. the Tasmanian devil, or like a little man. <laughs> or like a little See? blue man. <laughs> a little blue man. Awesome. Well, good game. Good job, Toby. Good. Thank you. Good game, Andrew. The devilish of all of us. Mm-hmm. The most devilly. Well, now's the time on the podcast <laughs> where Dylan chooses books at random from our shelves using a random number generator. It is time for The, the Choosening. The Choosening. The New Jersey Choosening. <laughs> so, Andrew. Hi. Do you like fun and games? Yes. <laughs> Well, then, thankfully, I have everything you need because you have number 47, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. What? How is that fun Welcome to the jungle. You They've have, got, got fun, fun in games. games. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, Dylan looks All so right. pleased with himself. It, I thought there was a second layer to that. I was like, wait a minute. Is it just everything? I'm sure this one will be really uplifting, Andrew. Breezy yeah. read. I've always wanted to learn about the practices in meatpacking plants in Chicago. May I be the first to tell you, welcome to the jungle, baby. You're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a it's a big uh, it's a big blind spot on my shelf. I've owned this book for years and never read it. This is what this podcast about? I wish I could say I was excited about <laughs> reading this one. <laughs> I'm excited to hear you talk about it. Well, we're gonna watch you bleed. Uh, <laughs> yes. And uh, Bailey. Yeah. I know that we're all sick of being cooped up here in our house uh-huh. during quarantine. So afterwards, we can go on a nice cruise getaway and be locked up in a cabin like 
Number 135, The Woman in Cabin 10 by Ruth Ware. Oh, I'm psyched for this. This one, I think, is like, I think, I don't know the exact plot, but I want to say it's kind of like Rear Window, but in a cruise ship. It's supposed to be just like a fun lady thriller. So (laughs) I'm psyched. Is it like The Girl on the Train, but on a boat? Mm -hmm. The 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 Woman on a Boat. So in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading Ruth Ware's The Woman in Cabin 10, and Toby is reading Kafka's Metamorphosis and Other Stories. Mm -hmm. That's true. Well... Guys, thanks for listening to the To Read List. <laughs> if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read List Podcast and on Instagram at the To Read List Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go onto your podcatcher, podcast review app of choice and write us five stars. It means so much to us and uh, it's the best way to guard against um, the infernal pit. Indeed it is. Indeed it is, Toby. Another way you could help us out if you're so inclined uh, is telling a friend. So that could be a family member, a close friend from work or a local New Jersey cryptid, a la the Jersey Devil. If you know any of those, tell them because word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners and it really does help us out. Excellent. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Macbeth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.